Welcome to the ICTA podcast, where we think together about unity and solidarity, or ICTA, on campus. In the ICTA podcast, we take time out to listen to students as they share their stories about what has made them feel powerful and powerless in their university journeys, and to hear their thoughts on practical steps that we can take to create more inclusive spaces at UFE. Let's learn differently together. ICTA. Eswell and welcome to ICTA a podcast about learning better together. My name is Victoria Surtees, and I'm UFE's internationalization specialist and your host. In this podcast, we're going to be hearing stories um, of students from all different cultures and backgrounds, and we're going to be discussing how we can make classes and university experience more inclusive. So I'm honoured today to be broadcasting from Civil Radio, which is located on Stolotumuk, the territory of the Halkamalem-speaking people of the river. Our episode today is part one of a two-part series featuring two guests, Leanne Joe and Natasha Renke. And Natasha and Leanne are going to be sharing their experiences as Indigenous students here at UFE. They're going to be talking about how uh, UFE's indigenization efforts are doing and what instructors can actually do to create more indigenized and decolonized spaces. So as you're soon going to find out, Leanne and Natasha have a really long history here at UFE, um, and that began around the time that indigenization efforts were actually just beginning to become policy. So I, for one, am really excited to hear their impressions about how things have changed. And um, I raise my hands to both of you two uh, for being here today. I just want to express my gratitude. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thanks for having us. See it, Thelma. All right. Well, let's get to know each other a little bit. Let's start with some introductions. Natasha, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I guess we'll just start with like a little bit of history. But um, I was raised in BC, mostly here, or mostly in Chilliwack. I'm not in Chilliwack right now. <laughs> um, which has been my home for the last 28 years. Um, I am Kluani First Nation, and we are Southern Toshone descent, and we follow a matriarch- matriarchal system um, of two clans. So we have the Crow Clan and the Wolf Clan, and I'm from the Crow Clan. I wasn't raised in our culture, because after my grandmother left the Lower Post Residential School, uh, she moved away from our traditional territory, uh, which is located in the Yukon in a small community known as Burwash Landing. So yeah, while my grandma did stay close to our elders and our family, and she would visit, um, she didn't return home um, officially until my mother and my sister and I returned her um, to her final resting place on our community's burial grounds um, this past fall. So uh, Natasha, I did a little bit of research and I discovered that the Kluane territory includes the highest mountain in Canada. Wow, so that's what settlers call Mount Logan in, in the Yukon there. Um, and I just wanted to to stop and talk a little bit about that matriarchal system of two clans. You said the crow and the wolf. Could you tell us just a little bit uh, more about what that means, a matriarchal clan system? So before I tell you that, funny story is <laughs> okay. about Mount Logan. Um, I didn't actually know that that was the highest mountain in Canada until after I had my son. And my son's named Logan. So our whole family's like, oh my God, Mount Logan! <laughs> and it's a big deal. <laughs> Um, But yeah, so we have the two clans and there's specific rules um, with a wolf clan having to marry somebody from a crow crow clan. So you can't marry within the same clan. And it's all about the grandmothers. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, well, it's so nice to meet you, Natasha, and thanks again for coming in today. Uh, Leanne, it's over to you. Hey, Swale, Sinaquia Telsquih. My traditional name is Sinaquia. I was born and raised in Staalis, where my maternal grandfather is from. My traditional name comes from Katesy, where my maternal grandmother is from, and her grandfather or her father, sorry, and his lineage, and my dad and his mother come from Mathaqui. Both of my great-grandmothers come from Squaw, First Nation, and Palalt, and I now live in Chiacto with my husband and our children. Chiacto is a part of the Tsukwayak tribes. I was born and raised Stalo. I did my undergrad as many different things, which turned into a Bachelor of General Studies from UFE with a global Indigenous geography theme. The thing that I am the most happy about from that, though, is my certificate in modern languages for Halkamalam, which is the language of the Stalo people. And I learned that also growing up at home in, at the school I was at in Chehalis. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, Chiactal is near what settlers would call Sardis, just for a little context for our listeners. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And so you speak Halkamalan. That's great. So I know that UFE actually now offers over a dozen Halkamalan courses from beginner all the way to advanced. Um, perhaps you can help us out a little bit, a few pro tips as a good speaker here. Um, how do you pronounce the colon in words like stalo and lalem, as in lalem baker? So that's lalem, and the colon on its own is not pronounced. It is a indication of enunciation on the letter before it. So stalo without the colon would be stalo. But with the colon, it elongates the O sound before it, so stalo. Thank you, Leanne. And I think we've actually forgot to mention that you both are just finishing up in teacher education. Oh. <laughs> yes. And so uh, congratulations to you for that. So now how many different programs have you both been in? I'm curious. So I have a family child care certificate and an indigenous maps films rights and land claims certificate a modern languages certificate for halkamalum a general studies diploma a bachelor of general studies and an advanced proficiency certificate in halkamalum which is up and coming by the end of june a bachelor of education <laughs> so what you're telling me is you're keeping the university afloat actually you're amazing <laughs> seriously so much this is why you're so knowledgeable <laughs> what about you natasha so i started with an applied business technology certificate and then I did my um, bachelor's of general studies because I also flip flopped so much. I was like, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> and then I did the um, indigenous maps film. No, hold on. Is it maps, films, rights, lands, land claim certificate? And then I went over to UBC 
for a master's degree, but then came back over here for the Bachelor of Education degree that we just finished. Well, I think it's safe to say that both you two are very, very knowledgeable about what's been going on with UFE in the last uh, decade and a half. Um, Pretty incredible. So I thought I'd ask both of you maybe if you could tell us just a little bit about ways of learning in your community. So at gatherings, we still hear our traditional oral stories, which are meant to tell us our history and teach us lessons. There's usually a moral in every story, and sometimes you can pick out a different moral in the same story if you've heard it more than once. Most people hear a story more than once in their lifetime, and every time you hear it, you can get a different lesson from that story. Also, I was fortunate to have been among the generation of students who were being taught the language and culture in school because um, my grandparents helped along with many other elders, but at the time my grandpa was the chief and my grandma was the band manager and the director of education. And they built a school that really encouraged the revitalization of language and culture. And while the elders were revitalizing language, they did it by teaching the children. So we had language classes and drumming and singing classes and dance classes. Uh, There were only a few fluent speakers left then, and they would all come. We would have groups of three or five people teaching us language all at the same time. Fast forward a few years to now, we only have one fluent speaker. And uh, Siami Atiliot, she works a lot to encourage us to keep learning faster and do what we can. I don't know the whole story of my grandparents and how much they did, but I know that people tell me today that my grandparents were the driving force for the Chehalis Community School to be built, which replaced the Chehalis Day School. And that was one of the schools that was in charge of assimilation of Indigenous people into Western society. And my grandparents were trying to put a stop to that and bringing back our culture and putting forth the effort into having a school that included our culture and language for the well-being of our children and future generations. I was raised with my grandparents and they really encouraged me to have a strong connection with education in Western ways of knowing as well as Indigenous ways of knowing and they're the biggest reason that I can be here today to be able to share and learn and want to learn more. They sound like really amazing people. Oh, for sure. Strong people. Um, And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the gifts they shared with you and that you're now sharing with us. And so I I just wanted to pause a moment and mention the day schools. Um, So I think probably many listeners are familiar with residential schools, which were boarding schools. Um, So there were about 130 of those in Canada attended by about 150,000 Indigenous families. So um, their purpose, of course, was to eradicate Indigenous culture and language, as you as you mentioned. But day schools also had the same objective. And those are now being recognized as well as as doing doing significant harm to Indigenous people. And so I just wanted to recognize that. 
So Natasha, maybe you can share your story. Yeah, so following what you just mentioned, you know, erasing ways of knowing, that's what happened to my grandmother. She lost the language when she left. And I think that's why it was so hard to go back home. And then the relationship between her and other family members became broken down due to it. And she didn't go back to high school and she didn't finish and neither did my mother or my father. And so when I was a child, um, that was something that like before high, how are you anything else? She was all about like, get your education, get your education. When I was a kid, I didn't really understand why no one graduated in my family. Like I just didn't get it. Like I was like, it's not that hard like to stay in school, but having this, you know, big moment of just looking back and understanding what they all went through and understanding and seeing what the intergenerational trauma did in the home and, you know, my mother's life and just knowing that, you know, education was something that was used against them. And so I know when my grandma wanted me to finish school, when I graduated in grade 12, um, it was such a big deal in my family because I was the first one. She, she worked at Kmart and she, uh, she made sure she took the Greyhound down here to get here to witness it. And it was a big deal. And I'm, I'm grateful that I got to have that with her before she left. Um, she, didn't get to fin- she didn't get to see any of us go to university. And she's, she's a huge reason why I, I do the work that I do now. And it was during the first two years of my undergrad that I lost her. Um, we lost her to cancer in her early 50s. And then... Not too long after that, we lost my auntie to a suicide that really just kind of destroyed the family. And it, I was, I think it was 18. And it was like during this period of time that I just really got to understand why people, the way they were in my family with addiction and coping mechanisms. And when I got to go through my grandmother's stuff and I found her testimony um, for the settlement for, or the compensation for the residential school um, case, I, you know, I got to read in these documents some things that I almost wish I didn't get to read because I can still hear them and I can still feel them. And, you know, just knowing that her word wasn't enough for the extra compensation that she probably should have gotten and, you know, there's many people out there still fighting for that compensation that they are required to have witnesses from when they were seven years old, eight years old, ten years old. And it's just a part of the bigger issue with the system that we're seeing right now um, with our government. But it was her experiences that I do truly believe, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I think that it's because of the pain that I feel and the pain that my family feels that I have this drive to become the educator that I wanted her to have when she was a kid and that she needed. And it was just, you know, looking at this period of time that also propelled me onto a really wonderful healing journey that I've been on. And, you know, I've done a lot of deep, deep work um, for my family and for my kids and I'm really, I'm grateful. Um, I'm sad, but I'm grateful. And I just know that, you know, like I said, it was education, but it's also going to be education. And that's where I hope to, to see changes. And um, while I wasn't, you know, lucky 
weren't fortunate enough to be raised in the culture, I'm also a part of the generation who's reclaiming it. You know, I'm reclaiming all of the things that were lost at that period of time. You know, I'm in the very, very, very early stages, like very early stages of learning the language. Um, I was accepted into a program when we started the um, education program at the uh, Yukon Language Center um, for level one. But but I'm just, I'm looking forward to also reclaiming that part because that's such a huge part of of our history and our culture is just knowing how to speak the language that was, you know, taken away from us essentially. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I especially appreciate that you, you sharing how intergenerational trauma has really impacted you and your family. And, you know, that, that term is actually coined originally for Holocaust survivors. Um, but it was quickly recognized, I think, that, that that term really applies to Indigenous peoples here and across the world. And so intergenerational trauma is, is when that early childhood trauma is passed from, from parent to child um, through all sorts of mechanisms. Thank you for, for bringing that up today. And I think that um, maybe that that transitions well into our next um, piece, which is about um, indigenization efforts and what you're thinking of there, because I think um, your story has provided a lot of context for the understanding, um, for understanding the need to indigenize. So it talks about the harms that, that the colonial system has created. Um, but it's also talking about, Leanne, you know, you're we talking about the practices that we've been missing um, missing out on. And so I think it would be great to share a little bit with our listeners about what indigenization is and what it looks like to you. So I wanted to give a quick definition of what it is for our listeners. And I took that from um, a manual called Pulling Together, which is the BC campus guide for curriculum developers. And it describes the indigenization um, process as a process of naturalizing indigenous knowledge systems and making them evident to transform spaces, places, and hearts. So I'm I'm excited to hear um, for myself and for our listeners. You know what what can it feel like, and also what shouldn't it feel like um, for our UFE students. Yeah, so I actually started at UFE in 2007. Um, like as you said, when the university was in its early process of indigenizing the institution. Um, and being a student off and on at UFB for almost 15 years, I've actually been able to witness a lot of the changes that have been made over the years. During my undergrad years, I saw a lot of the physical transformation that was occurring within the walls of the university, uh, with the opening of the Indigenous Student Center and the new support services that were being offered. Um, but I did feel like it was inside the classrooms and the curriculum where changes were needed um, to really happen. and. It's taken time and a lot of effort, but I am I am proud of the progress UFE, UFE has made, um, especially in terms of what is now being offered for coursework. Um, when I was doing my undergrad, I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of options. So I'm excited to see where students can take their education now. So can you maybe give us a few examples of courses you're excited about? Well, just the fact that you can get a major in Indigenous Studies. Like if that option was available when I was a student, I would be so excited. So I am really happy to see that for um, the current students and future students. Great. And Leanne, can you maybe share a few experiences on your side? I first came to the university in 2004 
as a part of a cohort that attended a program off campus in Seabird Island for the Family Child Care Certificate Program. And when I completed that, I realized I wanted to do more. So I spoke to an advisor and enrolled into courses that were leading towards psychology, but then I didn't really like that so much. So then I started going toward towards business. And when I first came to the university, though, I did not check the box that for me to identify as an Aboriginal student. A part of that gave me a little bit less support and I didn't really communicate very well with professors and I went through some difficult things with my family and I had some cultural obligations which ended up leading to me missing classes and falling behind and uh, I just didn't really think anyone would understand or be flexible and I couldn't really communicate with the professors at the time so I ended up dropping out and taking the GPA hit. And a few years later, when I returned, somebody from the Indigenous Student Centre knew me and questioned why I hadn't identified as an Indigenous student. And she kind of kept pushing me to check the box. And then she put also put my name forward to be a candidate for the Indigenization Committee Committee of the Senate. Then I was selected and served on that committee in its initial stages as well. I didn't really pay enough attention back then to expect any Indigenization in the university, but now that I see what it was to now what it is, I really appreciate the efforts of inclusivity and reconciliation that we share with not just Indigenous, but like all races and all um, students with all abilities. Uh, That is important to me. Like, it's not just about Indigenization. It's just full on inclusivity. So now we've reached a part of our show where I'm going to ask a question that's that's really important to me and was actually inspired by um, the Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Director at UFB, Sandy Pons. Um, she, she recommended that I ask a question about power. So I'm going to ask you now, what has made you feel powerless in your time at UFB and what has made you feel powerful? So we'll start with that powerless question. I think overall is still being taught and learning in a colonized system. Um, So like I do recognize um, that change takes time and there's been a lot of changes. Um, But most of the courses that I've taken at UFB um, have still been taught by settlers in a very colonial way. And it usually gives little voice to the students. And so, you know, there was times where I would be in a history class and you know, a teacher would be kind of glossing over um, the residential school experience. You know, it would just be something that would be kind of mentioned. Um, But just to maybe, you know, give voice to people in the classroom who actually 
have experienced some of those impacts or, um, you know, just also seeing Indigenous teachers um, in, the, in the academy. And I know that could also be for, you know, numerous reasons why we don't see that. But I know at my time at UFE, I had only had one Indigenous um, professor. So um, just, you know, not really seeing yourself in the education setting. And um, one of the um, experiences that definitely made me feel powerless was um, during one of my undergrad courses, um, we were asked to research a food preservation system. And so of course, um, a part of like my reclaiming my culture has been through education, any chance that I have to research about my family or learn more about our culture, I seize that opportunity. So I wanted to write a paper on um, the preservation practices used by my own family. And I reached out to one of my elders over the phone and we talked about the old ways. Um, and, you know, she was telling me about how they used the inside of a moose belly to preserve berries and fat as an energy source. Uh, they would store those in certain places because, um, you know, they're very nomadic. They don't stay in one place. And so I gathered so much information um, during this phone call. And I was so excited to add it to my paper, um, especially because it was just so close to my heart. And then when I was writing the actual paper, I realized that I didn't know how to use, or I didn't know how to source this information. So I reached out to my prof, who told me I couldn't actually use the content since it couldn't be properly cited. And so this was in 2017. I mean, this was well after UFE began their indigenization process. And, you know, I just felt like in that point in time, reconciliation was all smoke and mirrors. I thought, you know, you're, you're here you know, saying how much you value Indigenous knowledge, perspectives, and culture, and I can't even use the words and the knowledge from my family on a research paper. Um, so I did feel really discouraged at that time as an Indigenous student. And, you know, something that Leanne and I were talking about earlier that has made us both feel powerless here at UFB was um, the loss of a family member, a really close family member. And... It was a loss that just really, when I say destroyed our family, really destroyed our family. And I was close to the end of the semester. I think I had about two weeks left. And I'd reached out to all of my profs explaining, and I, I explained the situation because I was hoping that there would be some understanding because I had to travel up north. I had to plan the funeral. I had to take care of my mother. I had to take care, help take care of the family. And... I was still expected to, you know, come back and I had to re reclaim all of the content. I had to take care of and make up the labs that I missed. And I had to find a way to write these um, final exams with a big chunk of the course missing. And I failed these courses and my GPA dropped and I lost my funding. And at this period of time, you know, your GPA matters so much when you're trying to get to a certain point in your education journey, especially if you want to be a teacher. And so at this point, I just felt so discouraged and I felt like maybe these teachers don't value family the same way that I do. And maybe it's a, a system thing, you know, maybe that there's a black and white line, but there isn't a black and white line. We're all humans and sometimes these things are gray. And so, um, yeah, I did feel really powerless in those situations. So. so now tell me, what makes you feel powerful here at UFB? Um, I think for me, 
the number one thing that has empowered me on my education journey is just truly being supported um, by those who care about reconciliation and care about being inclusive and care about doing the work um, that is needed to get to this place that we are at with some some of our educators. And, you know, educators are placed in a position of power. And while I can appreciate reconciliation efforts put forth by UFE, um, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me if there's no changes actually happening in the classroom with the instructors. Um, so, as I had mentioned earlier, um, there was not a lot of Indigenous courses being offered during my undergraduate degree, um, which was disappointing. But there was this one program that um, I was fortunate to participate in because it's no longer running. And um, it was the Indigenous Maps, Films, Rights and Lands Claims Certificate. Um, this, this program um, empowered me, helped heal, helped change. It, it gave me a voice. Um, and it really, it changed my, my whole entire education journey and who I am today. And um, it was honestly the first time in my education journey that I witnessed true allyship of settler educators um, who cared about truth and reconciliation. And what made this program so unique was watching um, these four, um, these four men, one was a a filmmaker, one was uh, an instructor here at the university, one works for um, Stalo, and another member, another one was a Stalo member. And I got to witness the four of them collaborate together. And it was the first time that I'd, wa I'd witnessed allies and Indigenous peoples working together in an educational setting. It just really, it really just gave me this sense of, that I'd never had up until this point in my life actually, um, it gave me a sense that there are allies out there who care, who care to fight for some of the causes, who care to fight for or for land claims, for Indigenous rights. And, you know, one of the instructors in this, this uh, certificate was one of my geography teachers. And it was in this course that I, I truly saw his, um, his passion and his dedication. Um, you know, he, he was somebody who was a part of one of the biggest Indigenous court cases in Canada and, you know, stood behind the elders and did a lot of work. And, you know, another person in this program, you know, took me on a place name tour. And it was the first time that I ever got to really take in the place that I live in. And I was just, I just felt so fortunate leaving that program and I felt very empowered. And following that program um, was the first time I got to take a course with an Indigenous um, teacher at UFE. And it was the Indigenous Storytelling. Um, and I think it was an upper level course, actually. And this was so unique for me because, like I had said, there was not very many options at this time. And this was getting towards the end of my, my degree. And I was so excited. And um, it was in her course. Um, it was... Uh, <laughs> The first time, it was the first time I got to share um, my family's story in an educational setting. And it was super emotional and it was uh, super healing. And um, just learning from this instructor and her listening to her story, um, she really showed me the power of story and how we can use story to heal our families. Um, so 
that experience kind of tailing off of the land claim certificate, um, the two of them just kind of changed me as an Indigenous person, you know, who didn't grow up in her culture. And, you know, I got I, I got the both of I didn't grow up in my culture, but I also grew up with the racism and I grew up with the intergenerational trauma. And so sometimes I kind of felt lost between these two worlds because, you know, on one side, you know, I was indigenous enough to face the racism. But on the other side, you know, I didn't, I wasn't raised in the culture and I didn't get to, you know, experience the, the close-knit community that I was craving. And so I left um, both of those courses just so inspired. Um, sorry, I'm getting emotional just because one of the instructors of those programs is no longer here and he just, he changed my view on... Um, what it's like to be an ally and just really showed me that there's people out there who care. Um, and yeah, the, I would say the most empowering, the second most empowering experience after this, um, and it's the most recent one is, um, the Bachelor of Education program. Um, I truly do feel like each of the instructors in this program are authentic allies. I do feel like a lot of them have done some deep, deep work and, um, They've worked on decolonizing their teaching practices. And sometimes I feel like every instructor in this university should go through this program because the way that they teach and the way they show you, um, you don't see that in the walls of this. And I know it's for, you know, elementary and secondary, but I feel like a lot of teachers could really benefit from getting a refresh. Um, but every, you know, every course that was offered had Indigenous content woven into it and, um, I do think that the work that they're doing with the teachers of today is going to change the classrooms of the future. I feel I feel very, you know, fortunate to have become a teacher in this this time because I've talked to, you know, some teacher friends who went through, you know, their certification program 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and, you know, they don't know a lot of these teachings and they're feeling like they're catching up or they have to relearn and I feel very very you know, very um inspired by this program and you know I was a little bit hesitant on the first day of the program when I looked around and I didn't I didn't notice any um, indigenous instructors who were going to be teaching our courses um, and I think that's because in the past I'd kind of felt you know that if you take a history course with somebody who doesn't have a connection with the history sometimes it can come off insensitive um, I had taken some courses at UBC that you know I left feeling like a really bad taste in my mouth with the way that they were taught um, with the Indigenous content. And so I was hesitant when I got into this program, um, but now coming out of it, I can look back and say that they all taught it the way it was supposed to be taught. And they all held space and they actually created a little bit of a healing circle and a learning circle in our cohort where it wasn't just about the Indigenous students, but it was about all of us as human beings coming together. And um, I, I feel like the teachers who are leaving this program are going to make some changes. So that was a really empowering experience just as an Indigenous educator, but also as a human being. Natasha, those sorts of stories, they give me so much hope and they really remind me, you know, of all the work that's still ahead of us as well. And I I actually think this is probably a great place just to take um, some time to pause and to reflect. And for our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about what Natasha and Leanne have shared with us so far, please do check the description below the podcast for a link to a companion resource 
So on that document, you'll find a summary of our talk, but you'll also find contextual information and resources to support your indigenizing efforts. So for example, a guide for citing information shared by elders and knowledge keepers. And I think with that, we're going to uh, pause for this part one. So please join us next time when we hear Leanne's story of what makes her feel powerful and powerless as an Indigenous student here at UFE. And if you do have questions, ideas, or comments, feel free to reach out to me, Victoria Surtees, your host. Um, and please do that by email at victoria.surtees at ufv.ca. Thank you for listening to ICTA. And I hope you enjoy this short clip by a local artist, Saint Soldier, as you consider what ICTA, or unity, really means to you here at UFE. ICTA is hosted by UFE's Teaching and Learning Centre and sponsored by UFE International. Music by Saint Soldier. No matter how long it takes us, no matter how much this world breaks us, may we live here in peace, live here as one from Bolivia to Greece, from India to Canada and everywhere between. Namaste to everyone I see. Namaste, I recognize that it's one. Namaste, and the suffering is done. Namaste, 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 Namaste,